Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Before I get into this episode, I would just like to give a heartfelt salute to Taylor Hawkins, the Foo Fighter drummer who recently passed away all too early. I've always been in awe of him as a drummer and can't think of many people who played with as much joy as Taylor did. Whenever I saw the Foo Fighters live, which I was fortunate enough to do a couple of times, I was just left feeling like the band made such an effort to make everyone feel like they were their friends. And that is a rare thing. Early passings like this always give me perspective to not take the present moment for granted and live your best life now because there are no guarantees. So just wishing his family and the band all the best as they try to move forward during this tragic period. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and as always, this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Go check it out for all your musical podcast needs. Finally, the Song Facts Podcast is here to talk about Bob Dylan. Yes, I've been waiting for a long time. There is no better person to guide us through this episode than Dr. Stephen Arnoff who is the author of the new book about man and God and law, which is available via ebook now and then hard copy on May 3rd. Dr. Arnoff, who also hosts a podcast by the same name, which you can find on Pantheon's network, was nice enough to send me a copy of this book, which takes a unique look at Dylan and his works. Here we discuss how he took one line from the song Maggie's Farm and expanded on it, as well as getting into the deeper meaning of a few songs, including Like a Rolling Stone and one of my favorites, Blind Willie McTell. As a longtime fan of Dylan, I was very excited to have this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy Dr. Stephen Arnold. This room, the heat pipes just cough. The country music station plays soft, but there's nothing, really nothing to turn off. Just Louise and her lover, so entwined. Stephen Arnoff, Dr. Stephen Arnoff. Uh, you don't have to use the doctor. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Um, I mean, it's true, but it's not. Uh, oh, it's not going to get us anywhere. <laughs> you're, you're much more than that. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a small piece of the pie. Um, But yeah, so we're here. We're going to talk about this amazing book that you've written, the About Man and God and Law. Ebook is out now. That's right. And the full release is May 3rd. May 3rd is the publication date. Uh, Sold wherever books are sold. How long has this process been going on for you? Well... 
Once upon a time, uh, there was a, a, a guy from Cleveland. That was me. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with music uh, from the beginning. Um, that was kind of a family trait. My father uh, has always been a big fan of music. <clears throat> this was a period of uh, the hallmark radio station of the midwest and sort of nationally was wmms mm -hmm. so my musical education was at the uh feet of kid leo and len boom boom goldberg and jeff and flash those were the djs of the day okay and uh i got into uh i got into music and truthfully dylan was kind of at the later stage of me getting into rock and roll I was in bands and and I have played music since I was a kid, but the book itself, I'd say the introduction to Dylan, it came um, kind of late in my uh, musical education. And then it was really reading um, Griel Marcus's book, which was uh, The Invisible Republic at the time and is now called uh, The Old Weird America. Hmm. which turned me on to the idea that you could actually combine something like an academic approach with a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a traditions history of America and American music with a real personal point of view. So though some complain about Griel Marcus, to me, he is a real mentor and hero. And that's what turned me on to starting to teach about Bob Dylan in the various avenues and locations and uh, institutions where I was affiliated yeah, and to start to write some articles. And all of that eventually led to writing the book. And I guess one of the things that caught me immediately, and this was when I first saw the name of your podcast and then seeing the book by the same name, is where did the idea to take this single line from Maggie's Farm and just expand this into this media, the, a book and a podcast. I mean, I don't think it's that easy of a task to just take this short little phrase and then just open that up into its whole new world. And you've done that just in, a, in an amazing way. So I'm just wondering kind of where that came from. Did that just, did that line just stick with you? Just resonate? I appreciate you saying it, first of all, and I appreciate you reading it and, uh, and us talking about it. So that really uh, makes me feel good. Um, it's a great question. And um, it's sort of, revolves around the way I think and what my um, patterns of learning have been. And I think in a lot of ways, how music and texts do work. Um, there's no such thing really as an original text. When you keep peeling to onion and you ask yourself, where does a song come from? Where does an image come from? Even um, with a song like the ones we're going to talk about, um, this idea of interpretation of text being what makes texts what they are to me is a lot of how Dylan works. So it felt natural to me to try to write a book like that. And from my academic training and the kind of teacher that I am, I work in the field called Midrash, Midrash, which is Hebrew for interpretation. Mm. It's a really old uh, art of interpreting sacred text. And essentially what you're doing is trying to fill in the gaps that the text doesn't tell you once you're drawn into that text. Mm. So in a lot of ways, for me, I was kind of drawn into writing this book. I was looking for a hook to hang it on. And I understood that based on my interests, what I wanted to say about Dylan, that was the perfect line to use as a sacred text, essentially, to interpret. And that's how the book uh, rolled out uh, from that text. Stay tuned for more Song Facts Podcast right after this. Song Facts Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Guys, we've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, and you know that I am a fan of therapy. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. Well, the good news is that therapy works. 
what is therapy exactly? It's kind of a scary word. Well, it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're just feeling insecure in your relationships or at work or you're just not dealing with the stress of life still. There's a lot of stuff going on out there and it's good to have support. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and just to start feeling better because you deserve to be happy and now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see them on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. That's fast. I've done it. I've proven it. It's pretty cool. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about it's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And now, a special offer to Song Facts podcast listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash songfacts. That's betterhelp.com slash songfacts. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast, songfacts.com. Have a great day. Well, that's a really good way to, I guess, look at that. I mean, I didn't really think about, I mean, we're nothing if we're not interpreting, right? Dylan's never really given us much for clues. Um, so that's pretty much all we have with his. But I, I don't know, just to, to sit there and, and put 200 academic pages out on a single line was it's pretty incredible so i think that if nothing else you've at least done that <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i mean you just imagine time after time after time in rock and roll you know when we when we talk about like a rolling stone we are talking about versions of that image that go back decades if not hundreds of years yeah and what dylan's doing is interpreting it and putting a new valence on it and giving it a new way and a new window and a new uh, lens into it. And uh, that's interpretation, but it's also the art of creativity. So it's hard to tell sometimes one of one, whether it's creativity or interpretation or both. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because it is actually the first song that I kind of rolled up on. And you have a passage in, I think, the second chapter here where you mentioned the lyric, How Does It Feel?, as the chorus of the as of the song like a rolling stone As the defining question of his age, of the defining question of essentially the mid-60s, probably leading up to Woodstock, something like that. And I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on that sentiment a little bit. I mean, that's a pretty broad place to place that that one lyric. Well, apropos uh, writing books about one line. So one of my <laughs> favorite rock and roll books is Grill Marcus's book on Like a Rolling Stone, right? It's a whole beautiful book, and it's actually a book that comes kind of on the heels of the one that I mentioned on old weird, old weird America. And, uh, you know, um, like Rolling Stone starts the way that many great stories start once upon a time. Right. Mm -hmm. So as Griel Marcus says, and you know, you can hear it in that lyric, it's taking you to a place which is, um, amorphous. It's kind of beyond time. And a lot of what Like a Rolling Stone, I think, is trying to do is to locate a very specific feeling and a very specific experience that comes out of some chaos, some confusion. Dylan described Like a Rolling Stone as being 17 pages of vomit that he had to bring together <laughs> into one, uh, you know, one uh, epic speech, which is what Like a Rolling Stone is. And um, with the characters that show up in Like a Rolling Stone and the wonderful melody and the happenstance of how that song came together in the studio, 
the chorus of how does it feel, how does it feel is to me a question that signifies the age, just like you said. In the book, in, in my book, I talk a lot about the kind of centuries that lead up to the moment, which is the uh, pinnacle moments of rock and roll in the age of rock and roll, you know. Um, and the question that musicians are asking is the same as the audience is asking, who am I? Where am I? How does it feel? Means that I want to make sense of my experience in the world at a time where the, the authority structures are breaking down. This is obviously during a time of civil unrest. This is in between assassinations of great Americans. This is at the cusp of the real um, explosion of the uh, Vietnam War. And at all the different places where this song is at an intersection, the thing that's most wanted and most left out of all these shifts in power and identity is who am I? How does it feel? How I feel, how you feel, how we're gonna to feel together, that matters more than all the BS that people are talking about on the news and all the different ways that power and authority are working to try to shut down people from being who they wanna be. Yeah. Um, do you think that, it, how do you think that it is that Dylan was seemed to be just ahead of the curve? Like when he's dropping his um, album in the early 60s, his second album, I believe, when he, it's all these protest songs. It's, it's the peak of Dylan, of folk Dylan. And right. he just spoke to these people in such a way. And then three years later, he comes out with like a Rolling Stone and he's speaking to maybe some of the same people. A lot of them were angry with him, but he was still kind of ahead of the curve and asking that question that a lot of them hadn't quite gotten to yet. And I'm just curious through your research, if you've maybe uncovered something about, is it just his brilliance? Is it like he just seemed to be ahead of the curve by a little bit? He does seem to be incredibly intuitive. Um, he's also incredibly confident and he's not at all risk averse. So it's a combination of traits that maybe um, one couldn't actually duplicate them all in one place intentionally. It'd be too much work to try to create a character like that, but he's incredibly intuitive. He's seems to be fearless, creative, uh, uh, creatively. Yeah. He's got an incredible capacity to take in content, assemble it and spit it back out. Um, he doesn't mind changing course time and time again. And he has a real nose for trend lines in society. So, you know, there's, there's certainly other artists who have that kind of um, almost ethereal knowing where the next thing's going to be. I think about David Bowie, think about Prince. Um, you know, there are certain artists who just seem to be able to hop to where places are going to go before the places even get there. Mm -hmm. um, but um, in this respect, um, I wouldn't call it prophecy per se, but it's something like deep intuition that reflects beyond the self, right? So he is able to say, how does it feel? Because listening to Dylan not only reflects back how huge amounts of people, right, the audience feel, but it also helps people feel things they didn't even know they were going to feel. And that's yeah. part of the magic, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump up a little bit here because I really was curious. I've been curious about this question for a long time. And before I think we started recording, we were talking about needing curiosity to do this type mm. of do this type of show. And I, I wondered if you could answer this because it's a question that's popped into my head for years because I think starting with desire and kind of leading up to the mid 80s is what's kind of considered Dylan's Christian period. And I'm wondering if you feel as though that period of time was just an inevitability for him to fall into at some point in his career as a and just in his life as a person. Yeah, that's a really it's a really interesting question, because on the one hand, we won't know, we can't know, and we probably shouldn't know, because what's going on inside Bob Dylan as a person what are his needs uh, emotionally, spiritually, culturally? 
nobody knows except him. And I would bet that he's not even really sure because he would seem to be someone who's constantly asking questions at the same time as, you know, he's behind the shade. So we're not going to ever really get a glimpse inside. And it was also interesting to me. He, it ran parallel with like his deepest battle with addiction and alcoholism too, which I always kind of found as an interesting idea. You've got um, uh, a really painful divorce preceding that. You've got a return to the stage, which definitely involved a lot of cocaine, a lot of activity that was, you know, this is the mid 70s. Things are really things are really moving in that direction for anyone who's on the stage at that level. Yeah. Um, And uh, so there's there 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 could certainly be elements of exhaustion and personal crisis and seeking and a need to find a respite of some kind, but also because he is someone who is steeped in uh, American music, uh, he is um, not gonna ever be able to avoid the fact that a lot of these great songs that are his heritage that he learned from, they come right out of the Bible. They come out of Christian mythology. They come out of different kinds of mythologies that kind of run parallel to uh, traditional music of faith or spirituality, his fascination with the blues, his really, I would say, obsession with issues of race and um, purpose and American purpose and American schism, all would naturally lead a person towards Christianity. That is almost like he was imbibing the raw material of Christianity that whole time. And even though he was born uh, to a Jewish family and um, essentially over time is identified with being Jewish in, in many different ways as well. Um, it's hard to avoid that fascination and draw to Christianity if you're dealing with so much raw material that comes right out of that tradition. It doesn't surprise me that he would feel at home for a time going in. And when he goes in, he goes all the way in. Yeah. So he went all the way in. And you do kind of touch on a few, him and a few other people with these Jewish last names that throughout time and throughout that time period changed their names. And I sure. just, I didn't really recognize that until I read that and then reread it again. And I was just like, huh, there was something there that was like, running from something or just one like he's always you know he's known as someone who reinvents himself but then to like put him in this position as with these other people who kind of ran from that part of themselves was I I felt like a really interesting thing for you to touch on in there yeah the idea of uh show business today regarding uh, not just Jewish identities but any kind of sort of quote-unquote ethnic identity um even in the early 60s Um, it was not considered um, wise to try to crack into show business with a Jewish last name, whether Mm -hmm. you were Jerry Lewis or Woody Allen or Bob Dylan. Um, In the letter that I think I referenced in the book that he wrote to a friend back home, he talked about how uh, changing the name from Zimmerman to Dylan or to any other name was something that he had to do in order to avoid any form of uh, discrimination or anti-Semitism or what have you. So uh, we, we maybe forget how revolutionary certain um, changes in culture and cultural identity were in the period where Dylan was really starting to work. Um, it was not the America then that we think we knew, but then when we see over the past few years what's happened in America, a lot of those harsh edges of discrimination and bigotry and you know, hate of the other, yeah. they're still alive and well, very, very, very sadly, you yeah. know, in America, despite the Dylan revolution and what it brought. Yeah, I mean, those embers can be covered up, but unfortunately, it seems like they're they're just always going to linger around and you get a little yeah. gust of wind and they can flare back up. Yeah. Embers is a really uh, eloquent way of saying it. Well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. a gen- it's a gentle subject. <laughs> yeah, but hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to go in somewhat of an order here, but sure. I, so I'm, I was so happy when you sent me the songs that you wanted to talk about when you put Blind Willie McTell in there. Saying this land is condemned All the 
Um, I discovered this song, I mean, Dylan's been in and out of my life since I was in my late teens, early 20s, mm. and somehow at that time, this song was something that just came on my radar. I think it's because I was learning acoustic guitar at the time, it was a song I could yeah. play, um, and that kind of thing, but I just wondered what you can tell me what why do you think that song got left off of this album when it's just so highly regarded once it got released on the chronicles well much fancier commentators on rock and roll and bob dylan than i don't have an answer to that question and i don't know if you asked dylan what you know what was the reason he'd say i have no idea you yeah. know like <laughs> he, there there wasn't a plan you know the the um the writer jonathan Latham wrote a piece about um i think for the cambridge companion to bob dylan where he basically makes a case for the fact that there is no album called infidels and basically there's so much uh, that was left on the cutting room floor that's re-emerged over the years that um you just do a build yourself album for infidels and when you start including some of the songs that were left off you, you may have one of Dylan's greatest albums by every measure. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a mystery. Uh, why? I wonder um, sometimes when uh, we talk about Dylan and the mask, Dylan and the uh, artist who hides himself and, and changes uh, in order to avoid being sort of discovered for who he may really be. I don't know if that case holds up, but this particular song goes so deep into the identity of a singer, a white singer singing music, which is generated by black culture, black suffering. And it is um, one of the great bittersweet unresolved riddles of popular music right here. Um, and one of the, <laughs> elements of Dylan that's so um, amazing is that he does not seem to care Yeah, when he discovers something the next day he's on to the next thing mm -hmm. and uh, I've heard stories about that you know he'll be in the studio he'll finish recording or he'll finish a show or he'll finish a project he drops the mic and moves on he's not interested in staying in that same place this place is really deep, though. So I wonder, maybe, if it was almost too much uh, to share. I mean, maybe, but it, it, this song is him, like that, what you're talking about is he, with his own life, he can, he just keeps walking the line and just keeps pressing forward, chooses not to ponder these types of questions. He maybe has never thought about why I didn't put that on the album. Who knows? But throughout the book and then just throughout if, if you've studied Dylan at all you just see that he is someone that looks back and he's you know think of all the different characters that he puts into something like Visions and Joanna and 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 um and a song like Blind Willie McTell where he's just like telling these stories about the slave trade and the blues in America during the Dust Bowl area and then way that he talked about Woody Guthrie for so long and all of that kind of stuff. Like he is someone that just res has so much respect for the past is willing and is willing to look back that it's an interesting concept that he maybe doesn't do that nearly as much with himself. He just chooses to keep pressing forward. I think Dylan is ultimately a performer. And I don't mean performer in the sense of like he's faking it. I mean making. He's a doer. He's a maker. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to the Frost Museum in Miami and to see the Retrospectum, which is his uh, collection, the largest collection of his art. So it's paintings, drawings, writings, and sculpture. And the thing that's I found most, uh, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful moments in there, and there's a lot of stuff where you see a guy who's really teaching himself to paint, right? Uh, but what's most beautiful to me, and I really mean beautiful, is that here's a guy who has all the time and money in the world. He is esteemed wherever he would go. He can do whatever he wants with his life. And that's been the case for decades. And you can see 
that unless he had someone doing the painting for him and doing the metal work for him, that guy was in the studio every spare minute he had working. And I love that. And I think that is probably one of the keys to what makes Bob Dylan great and such a great model for any kind of artist. He has to work. Yeah. He's got to perform. He's got to do. And so I can imagine not as much of a what have you done for me lately kind of feeling that he might have, but rather um, I go to this place. I have access to this very deep, very profound set of feelings, but that's not going to pay the bills for me creatively. Even the next day, I want to keep creating. I want to keep making things. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. Yeah, I kind of imagine that in his mind, it's what would what kind of what would happen if he didn't release that that creativity and, and settle that urge that he has to just constantly do that. Like he'd probably drive himself crazy. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, he says that on the, on infidels, I think, you know, maybe I should have been, a uh, was he say a doctor, you know, instead of burning every bridge I cross, uh, something to that effect. I heard an interview from that period. Once I used to have a, an interview, a Dylan interview on vinyl. And I remember he said something like, I don't know. Some days I think maybe I should just be on a boat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, you know, um, uh, I, I think that we see from his touring regimen that he doesn't just think poetically, well, I got to play music or I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I'm a, I'm a musician, you know, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards can say that, but they go out and do, you know, seven stadium dates and then take a rest for three months. Right. Dylan's doing a hundred dates a year at the age of 81, 82. Right. And, and he says, that's the only place I feel comfortable. You kind of have to believe it. The place though, I think is the place of creating and making things. It's not necessarily standing on a stage in front of 10,000 people. The place that he feels most at home is the place where he's making something. Cause that's a place where he feels like he is who he is but he isn't staying in the same place. It's dynamic, you know? Yeah, and very much so because the few, you know, the handful of times that I've seen him, you can hear, you know, any song and it's just, it's never going to be played the same. So he is, he that is constantly just churning and he just like really doesn't tell yeah. his band. He's like, we're, we're an F sharp this time. Let's go. Yeah, and yeah which, which, could, <laughs> which would be a, a tough place to be as a band, a bandmate. And it's been even tougher for a lot of fans or not so much fans, people checking it out because, um, you know, it's been many a time at a Dylan show where you'll hear someone uh, turn and say, I can't wait till he plays, you know, like a Rolling Stone. They're like, he, he just played it. <laughs> he just played it. Well, I didn't, I couldn't tell. <laughs> exactly. No, that was the, that was the very, very slow right. version. Yeah. That's right. um, so we are both a part of the Pantheon podcast network and Christian Swain is our is our fearless leader and CEO, and he wrote quite the praise, which is featured at the beginning of the book. Um, and I, I just I, I read that and I was just like, wow, that's incredible, and it got me really excited to read the book. Um, and I asked him what question he might have for you, and he gave me this one. It's more of a big picture question because I think that's the way that Christian thinks a lot of the time. And he said, "Is it time to call Bob Dylan the American Shakespeare?" Wow. Well, first of all, Christian Swain is an incredible, uh, just an incredible rock and roll mind. And talk about a rock and roll maker. When I first stumbled onto rock and roll archaeology, uh, honestly, it kind of changed my life in a certain way because I didn't know you could actually do what he was doing in a podcast or in that sort of way that he envisioned, you know, being able to tell rock and roll stories. So 100%. I was, I'm floored by that, that podcast and like the production that goes into that. Amazing. It's amazing. And uh, yeah, we are, we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast network. That is exactly right. Uh, You know, I think that uh, it's already um, evident in in all kinds of ways that Dylan is a Shakespearean figure. He's also a Shakespearean character, I think. Yeah. But um, in terms of being a creator who works with 
the raw materials of uh, inherited texts and with contemporary culture and with the bells and whistles of contemporary culture and is able to attract an audience at the same time as being considered truly, uh, I don't know, highbrow, high culture, but rock and roll is quote unquote low culture. What's the difference? I mean, in Shakespeare's day, he had to put butts in seats just like Dylan needs to put butts, butts in seats, you know, at his shows. Yep. So one of the things that I think is, um, you know, sort of to answer Christian's question is, um, yes, uh, I think it is time to think of Dylan as, uh, as, as, as our Shakespeare. I think that it will be hard to call our age anything because things move so fast. But even from the cultural, religious perspective of the shifts around Dylan, Dylan makes them, Dylan's a part of them. Um, this is the age of Dylan. I think the, the ways that we think about the power of po popular culture are in a large part catalyzed by Dylan moving popular culture to the same place of import and how we think about the world as uh, Shakespeare is sort of how we think about the world. We think about the world of Shakespeare through his lens, through his eyes. So there's a lot of parallels there. And some really cool books have been written about that and, and um, people who, who teach it and, uh, and explain it. And uh, I, I, would, I would tune into them as well, for sure. Yeah, and I like the concept and the idea of what, given whatever it is, two or 300 years beyond the whenever Dylan does decide that the the endless tour finally does end right. um and and he he goes on his his merry way what and we have generations of people now looking back and reflecting the way that we are right now but more time is being able to pass to really start to dissect these things is that parallel going to become greater or lesser it's you know obviously it's not something that we can answer now but i i find it very fascinating to think about the time that's passed and the way that Shakespeare was maybe not as understood in his in his time but now people are able to like wrap their head around some of the stuff that he was saying and, and writing yeah it's interesting because I think uh it was John M M um I, I don't I'm not sure if I have the book with me uh I do indeed there's this book uh, it's called The True Performing of It, hmm. Bob Dylan and William Shakespeare. Uh, Andrew Muir is the guy who wrote it. Uh, it was recommended to me by Richard Thomas, who wrote uh, Why Dylan Matters. And Richard is a, a professor of, of classics at, at Harvard. Uh, and, and I think Andrew is a colleague of his who works in the UK. And he talks a lot about the parallels topic by topic between um, Dylan and Shakespeare. And, uh, you know, the the perspective that we're going to have on on Dylan, um, it's impossible for us to say what our perspective is going to be on anything, um, because our memories are getting smaller and the amount of data we take in is getting greater every single day. Mm -hmm. But it is absolutely true, just like Moby Dick, just like Herman Melville, just like uh, Shakespeare, uh, they were not um, uh, uh, known and and uh, and celebrated in their own time. Um, Dylan has been celebrated almost since the moment he picked up the guitar on any kind of public stage. Yeah, um, He's been one of the most famous people in the world since he was 20, 21 years old, exactly. right? Uh, so uh, I, I don't know which end of the telescope we should look in to sort of project <laughs> what Dylan is going to be, but... Um, it's something that we're going to be looking at. That's for sure. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to kind of see how that pans out, but obviously we'll probably be long gone as that, as the majority of it unfolds. Um, you gotta, we're going to have to and make maybe sure. lucky and maybe lucky because of that, you know, the it's way true. things are going. <laughs> Very true. We need to uh, make sure that we get Christian that book. If he hasn't read it yet. <laughs> yes. I'm going to put it on the list. Absolutely. I, uh, I, uh, I think that, uh, you know the the bookshelves are are pretty full over there at Rock and Roll Archaeology. They're gonna have to they're gonna have to move over one more slot. Maybe a, maybe he's got to take one of the Zeppelin books off the shelf or something. Who knows? I don't know. That that most recent one's pretty big, pretty heavy. <laughs> 
Um, all right, we got one more song to kind of dive into it. I'm gonna just let you kind of go into this because Murder Most Foul. Let the good times roll. There's a party going on behind the grassy knoll. Stack up the bricks, pour the cement. Don't say Dallas don't love you, Mr. President. Put your foot in the tank and step on the gas. Try to make it to the triple underpass. Was a new song for me. And I'm just astonished in so many ways by this song. I mean, if you're a fan of Dylan, you know Desolation Row, you know Sad-Eyed Ladies. You know these songs that are just these dreary, just wordy, amazing lyrical adventures. But this was a whole new thing for me. And I just was astonished at both the mass of the lyrics as well as the the structure of it. And just this really kind of droney piano that it's like, can I find the rhythm? Can I find the melody? There's so much going on for it. But I just wondered what about this song piqued your interest for this book? Yeah, and some of that droney piano in the background, is, it's said that Fiona Apple was lending a hand on some of the musicianship behind the scenes there, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm a big, big fan of Fiona Apple. I think she's kind of a genius, too. Um, you know, we're talking about stories, right? What's the stories within these songs? What's the stories behind them? And this one, like 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 a Rolling Stone, uh, begins, "'Twas a dark day in Dallas, November 63." Right. So this is going to be an epic. This is a uh, uh, singing me, O muse. This is a uh, once upon a time. This is, uh, you know, it was a dark and stormy night. This is a classic uh, green light for telling an epic story. And I think that um, this is an example of how Dylan uh, does something to pin a whole universe of feeling and experience on a particular event in history that really, um, you know, drives the story forward. He um, can remember where he was when JFK was assassinated. Mm -hmm. I can't remember where I was and you can't either because we weren't even around yet. And yet there are certain events in history which have this profound shaping uh, effect on, on everything that comes after it. And so, first of all, talk about biting off more than you might be able to chew. Right. It's like one of the pinnacle, <laughs> one of the landmark events of the of the 20th century, certainly in America. And um, it is ultimately a song about trying to make sense of a life and making sense of things in a world which is corrupt, which is foul, which is um, turned and focused um, by my murder. Right. Um but what's being echoed here, I think, is um, ways that we try to make sense of ourselves and history through poetry, through song. Um, we can cut to the moral of the story, which I think essentially is sing. The moral of the story here, despite the assassinations, despite the uh, corruption, despite a lot of death, which is described in the story, is sing. Sing while you can still sing. And if you can't sing, listen to music and let the music be sung through you. And that's it, right? All the rest, as we say, is commentary. This song is about what it means to be alive at a time where things don't make sense. And so if he's saying that he was you know, 22, 23 years old when Kennedy was assassinated, and for a lot of people, it was sort of like, you know, the head was cut off of society. I mean, this was... This was this was a guillotine, right, to what a lot of people saw as hope, hope yeah. for civil society, hope for on the geopolitical level and hope for youth. Um, the way to make sense of all that confusion, that mixed up confusion blues is uh, is putting it all into the landscape of music. And he just does a litany of listing the singers and certain figures of song and music that have helped him make sense. It is a very humble song uh, for such a grand topic. And uh, the moral is something that you can, you can try this at home, right? Anybody can sing, anybody can op- turn on the radio, anybody can listen to music. Um, 
And, you know, I just kind of frame it with one other little piece because, you know, uh, uh, though, though he may not have a smartphone and he may not actually tweet the official tweet <laughs> that accompanied this song, I'll just read it. Uh, and this is, this is when the song was released. He wrote, uh, greetings to my fans and followers with gratitude for all your support and loyalty over, across the years. Uh, this is an unreleased song we recorded a while back that you might find interesting. Stay safe, observant, and may God be with you. Bob Dylan. Hmm. That's about as personal and beautiful a message as I would expect to hear from a friend of mine, let alone from, you know, our friend Bob, who doesn't know us and, you know, doesn't care, right? And doesn't speak so that, directly. Yeah. Is stay safe. This was this is at the heat of pandemic. This is in the middle of of the, you know, morass of, of Trump without getting too political here. Yeah. He says, stay observant, which is listen, listen, pay attention to what's going on around you. Don't give up on paying attention, take it in and may God be with you, which is basically a way of saying, you know, um, you're not alone. You're not alone. And, and I think it's an amazing epic statement that keeps things really simple. Stay safe listen and you're not alone i think it's beautiful absolutely i didn't even realize that he had a twitter to be honest <laughs> yeah well you know you gotta pass those lonely hours on the bus doing something yeah. so you, you 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 just open up your your twitter account and then then you'll find them <laughs> yeah i mean i i just i was sitting there last night and i was just listening to that 16 minutes as I'm falling asleep and I'm just in awe of all the different, I mean, I think a lot of times we think of Dylan of his lyrics just kind of flowing out of him, but I feel like because of the way that the song was structured with him paying homage to so many artists and songs and giving us the advice of go listen to this and go listen to this and just it's over and over again. He really took the time to, I think, selectively choose those which I, I think a lot of times he puts himself in a place where he thinks he wants us to think that what he's putting down is unintentional. And I don't think that he can hide behind it on this one. I th- it, it really is like the letter that the next president finds in the drawer from the preceding president with like, here's the, here's what you really need to know about the job. This is, you know, how to, how to make sense of the world, how to survive. And, and it's a curriculum, yeah. right? It's a curriculum. And a weird one too, because Stevie Nicks is in there with Charlie Parker. You know, you've got, <laughs> you've got, you know, Dickie Betts on one side and Ray Charles on the other. It's it's kind of counterintuitive, and uh, you know, in thinking about this song myself before we before we started to chat, I thought about two songs, you know, sort of on opposite sides of the spectrum, that that um, that I I hear when I listen to this song. And one of them is American Pie, obviously, because it also uh, is uh, circulating around the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly. Uh, Big Bopper and Richie Valens is kind of like the day the music died is also the day where something in the culture died and could never be returned. But another one I thought of was Bowie's Is Is There Life on Mars? It's a god-awful small affair to the girl with the mousy hair. So on the one hand, you could talk about the assassination of a president or Buddy Holly dying in the crash and all the lost promise. On the other hand, rock and roll is about finding ways to identify that we feel lonely and feeling that we're not alone. And I always, I, I think Is There Life on Mars is one of the great, I think Hunky Dory is one of the great rock albums of all time. And I think that Is There Life on Mars is one of the great songs of all time because I don't think it gets any bigger than outer space and yeah. life on Mars. <laughs> but the only reason we're talking about life on Mars is because this poor kid is offended by your parents or whatever happens. Like this girl with the mousy hair. I mean, who has not felt that way? She's like, well, this planet didn't work out, but maybe there's another planet out there that, that people like me can live on. Yeah. And, and I just think that that is also kind of like, you know, that's, that's like the um, prize in the Cracker Jack bop box of culture it's like look at that here's somebody out there um this 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 space alien called david bowie who's handing me a curriculum handing me a ticket and saying you know what um there's a way out of here 
and it's through your imagination and it's through listening to music. And uh, I think Dylan's doing the same thing in Murder Most Foul. Yeah, I can't I can't argue with that at all. I I'd, I'd have to go back and listen to that Bowie song again because it's probably been too long. But that's a perfect way. It's and I mean if if it's nothing else, these artists give us a way to escape, and that's why we you and I both do what we do and try yeah. and dissect these artists their 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 sure. works and their songs and all that and i i can't thank you enough steven the everyone the book is about man and god and law if you're super anxious get the ebook it's out now but if you want to wait for the hard copy may 3rd and thank you so much thanks it's been a great pleasure to be as a great conversation and i'm a fan too so i'll be you know i'm a subscriber and a listener and i'm proud to be in the same company as uh, another one of these great pantheon podcasts so thanks for having me Corey. thank you thank you thank you to dr arnoff for coming on and chatting about dylan i could do it non-stop i just love his music so much be sure to check out this book it's out on ebook now about man and god and law as well as hard copy on may 3rd and listen to the podcast by the same name as always for the stories behind the songs go to songfacts.com have a great day It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.